just to recap, there are five kinds of stress. This is just one way of looking at it. Four are distress, and one is positive, and that's eustress. Stuff that stresses in a good way. Now, the four kinds of distress are environmental stress, and you know, even that can be eustress. Those of you who like sitting in ice baths like I do, those who like sitting in saunas like I do, that's environmental stress, but it's eustress. And second is developmental stress, the kind of stress that occurs when we're little, when we're children. And that's problematic because it changes the way that our brain grows. And that requires a lot of recovery work to pick up the pieces of that kind of distress. And we've talked about this before. I'm not going to go into that a lot tonight, just a little bit. And the third is social and interrelational stress, the stuff that really affects us, social mammals. It's the kind of stuff that really you know, gets to us in a way. It's, 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 the, um, it's the conversations. It's the emotions we feel when somebody else speaks to us and says something. It's this kind of complexity of the social world and that relational world. And the fourth is perceptual stress, which, which kind of wraps up a lot of stuff, really. It's the way we see things. And that gives us a key angle to changing things, perceptual stress, by the way. And new stress is all the good stuff. Sports, uh, lovemaking, challenges, well met. You know, we, we've done it. Uh, it's all the good stuff. Plus the things we like, the environmental stress, whether that's rock climbing or running or, uh, you know, like I said, ice baths and saunas and so forth. As I said before, all these are interrelated. When you understand how you do stress, then you can be begin to reverse engineer it and grow into resilience. Now, this we've got an online course about this. There's a whole lot about this stuff. But I want to go into a little bit more. Resilience very quickly is bending like a tree in the wind. It's any response to stressors that make you stronger. So resilience is where we ride the stress. We surf it and we use the experience to become even stronger, more creative, more curious, uh, more compassionate, more committed, more playful, more all the good things that we want. Okay. So it's not a collapse. It's that, it's that growing. One of the important things about resilience, like I've said before, is using applied knowledge for the purposes of freedom. When we use stressors as a learning curve and give ourselves space to get it wrong and, and that being okay, we can use it in a liberating way. Because you, like I, like all human beings, can mm. learn powerfully. And, and often we learn at school that we can't learn. Schools often teach us to fail and feel like failures. We're not. We just didn't have good models showing us how to learn well. And, you know, with the school situation at the moment where there are so many children in a class, then it's very difficult to teach kids to learn. You can't do it in that kind of environment. It's not, not a good place for learning. Now, we learn best when we no longer blame ourselves, shame ourselves, or blame others for our responses. We manage to remain in the learning frame. And I've said before what a learning frame is. It's a mental and emotional state of observation, curiosity, and choice. Awareness is key here because observation means we can see clearly the nature of phenomena, stuff that's happening. That's thoughts, feeling, body sensations, objects, people in our environment. And how will these things interrelate and interrelate? And we've got to stay curious about this, playful, and see how they relate. And we've got to stay in choice the best we possibly can. And we've got to stay compassionate to ourselves and then to others as well. So staying in a learning frame is a powerful, powerful way of dealing with any stressor and it keeps us keeps us bright it keeps us engaged and it keeps us collapsing into the adrenalized or cortisol rich states that can cause so many complications including severe and i mean severe metabolic dysfunction 
you know, stress is implicated in all the metabolic disorders such as cancer, cardiovascular disorders, dementia, diabetes, you name them, you know, inflammatory conditions, it's associated with all of them. So when we're working in this way, we're keeping ourselves well as best as possible. And we can do it. The point is that we can do it. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm big into evolutionary biology. You know, big evolutionary biology, kind of neurobiology, this kind of stuff. It, I love it. This is where my edge is. One thing I want to talk about is our ventral surface vulnerability. This is a term I came up with. I call it ventral surface vulnerability. If you put your hands on your belly and feel it, it's soft. There's no bones between your pubic bone and your ribs. It's soft belly. And any one of us can be hurt. Anyone. You know, regardless of all the heroic Hollywood superhero movies out there where people bounce and get up again and, you know, this kind of thing. Human beings are soft, soft-bellied. It doesn't take much to disembowel us. And getting up on two feet put us into that vulnerable position. Any quadruped walking around on four feet has its soft underbelly down to the ground. It's protected. It has, you know, bones on its back. It has big shoulders. It has horns on its head or it has big teeth and jaws. It has protection. And as soon as we come up into bipedalism and stand up on two feet, and human beings really are the, the first things to do this, the first creatures to do this, our ventral surface is facing the world. And that has many, many profound systems-wide consequences in terms of our structure, in terms of our physiology, in terms of our breath. There are so many aspects of the, the change when we stand up on two feet. Now, some of these uh, systems-wide consequences are, are better to see through the lens of anatomy, some physiology, some psychology, some sociology. They're all connected, though. They're just different lenses looking at the experience of what it is to be human. Now, when we stood upright on our feet, like I said, our vulnerable ventral surface faces forward. It's a problem because we have to then be able to protect ourselves. That's why people invented armor and tanks and all that kind of thing. It's why people armor their body with muscular armor, you know, tightening up fascial webs, structures in the body to try and create a sense of protection because we know that we're vulnerable. Yeah. There's this vulnerable breathing belly pointing out into the world. And of course, one of the things that happens in trauma is the vulnerable breathing belly stops breathing like that. And it gets tightened up and contracted and the breath goes adrenalized and comes up into the upper chest. If you look at our structure, our face also points in the same direction as our belly. And again, that's different again for quadrupeds, you know, animals on four feet whose faces, if you turned them around in the field of gravity, would face up. That's interesting when you think about it. And of course, those quadrupeds you know, have a whole different experience of the world in that way. One of the ways evolution has worked out for us to um, manage this ventral surface vulnerability is to get rid of big claws. We don't have them anymore. To get rid of big teeth. We don't have them anymore, except in horror movies and vampire tales. And if you look at the skull, it no longer has great big jaws powered by big muscles because a mammal skull can only be a certain size because it has to come out. It has to come out of a birth canal. It can only be a certain amount. There's only so much real estate on here for a skull to have. And it grows, of course, once it's outside, but it still has to come out. 
So the choice is, do you want do you want a skull that has real estate for big jaw, big jaws and the massive muscles that have to power that and supersized teeth? Is that how you want your skull used? Or would you like the skull used for having a larger brain to enable social communication, thought, language, this kind of thing? So the larger brain, communication, language, a larynx, the voice box that can enable that, and the way breathing works to give this kind of communication, all of this, all of this is a result of standing up on two feet. It's all connected. Our front paws are also off the floor. Here are mine now. And what's happened to our paws is that we've got opposable fingers and thumb. We're the first creature again with completely opposable fingers and thumbs where we can oppose the thumb against the little finger, ring finger, middle finger, index finger. We can do that quite easily. And that gives us the capacity for making tools and the brain to go with that, the brain to go with the dexterity. Other creatures make tools at all, of course, but they don't build houses like we do. They don't build computers like we do. They don't do that. And they didn't make fire like we did. And fire was a game changer because fire kept us safe at night. It kept the wolves at bay until we made them our friends and turned them into dogs. You know, fire was a game changer. It enabled us to cook food so we didn't need to have big teeth in that way. We could just have it pre-digested by cooking it, which is what we do with food. You know, cooking food pre-digests it. It breaks it down to a degree. So it's much easier for us to digest. We're dependent on fire. Lots of people think we can live on raw food and maybe a few people can, but it's generally not uh, not very workable for human beings. We tend to be quite reliant on, like I said, breaking down the food to a degree first. Now, if you look at it as well with this bipedal standing, our cranium, yeah, our anus and genitals are now on different levels for the first time in evolutionary history. Not only that, but our genitals face forwards. So rather than being tucked between the back legs, they're visible, facing forwards. And with visible genitals and a communicating, thinking brain, we get visual comparison and we get associated narratives, a whole range of meanings. And we also get going with that clothing. And of course, ultimately, a whole fashion industry. And of course, we get body type judgments and body shame and dysmorphia. And all of the stuff we're dealing with in the modern world about, you know, you know, particular individuals, particular genders or sexes, or it's supposed to look, you're supposed to look like this. You're supposed to have this attribute. If you don't have this attribute, you're not as attractive. If you don't have this attribute, you're not as lovable. You're not as loved. You won't get what you want because you don't look like this. And of course, all of that jumped out of the gate, the starting gate, and into the track of history. When we went bipedal, it started then, and it's continuing. And it has huge complexities in terms of how we feel about ourselves, you know, shame and uh, comparison. Uh, and Hafiz said, comparison is the thief of joy. I'll say it again. Hafiz, the great Turkish poet, said, comparison is the thief of joy. Now, our ventral surface facing forwards means we have to also communicate differently, like I said. Uh, and curiously, if you come back to thinking about that uh, cranium over anus, that verticality thing. We human beings run with a whole lot of verticality metaphors where down there is bad. You know, it's it's excremental down there. It's mucky, it's grubby, and up there is good. So we've got whole cultures, you know, arguably religions, but certainly whole cultures built on this verticality metaphor where up is good and down is bad. 
it really changes the way we think when we come bipedal. So it's a curious place to be. And of course, the thing about the human species is that we are only around about 200,000 years old. We're very young. So we're just in the process of the early phases of our evolution. Hopefully, if we don't completely uh, destroy the planet, which given the current situation whereby we have massive climate change happening and we have a whole lot of um, curious individuals, I would suggest a lot of them are sociopathic to some degree or another and certainly very selfish and greedy, are in charge of running the show on the planet. We have created political systems and economic systems where people with sociopathic tendencies can get to the top of those and control it with their main interest. It appears to be, I don't know if it is or not, but it appears to be greed, selfishness, uh, controlling agendas, power, dominance over other people. It appears to be that. I can't see much evidence of it being anything else. It's certainly not intelligence. It's certainly not ecological intelligence. It's not looking at the consequences of our actions in terms of the whole of the planet and collectively us working together to create a planet that is in, going to be inhabitable for human beings in 20, 30, 50, 100, 200 years, 250 years, 1,000 years. We don't seem to be doing that. So we're obviously a very juvenile species in a lot of ways. We have a lot to work out. And one of the things we have to work out is how we govern ourselves and how we look after this planet. We haven't worked out yet how to steward it, but we have worked out how to destroy it. And that's quite a problem. So, you know, not only that, but we're only 10,000 years out of hunter-gatherer type um, human groupings, social arrangements. And of course, in those social arrangements, we had we would we would live in tribes around about well, small family packs around about 100, 120 people, and then the pack would split and it would go two different ways. And this kind of um, coming out of hunter gatherings is only ten thousand years old. And in that time, we've built city states, we've uh, developed agriculture, and we've changed the face of the planet. You know, the last. 200 years of the Industrial Revolution have radically changed things where we found new sources of energy. You know, all the sources of energy for building civilizations up until uh, the last couple of hundred years were, of course, slavery, using other human beings to do the thing that we wanted to get done. So it looks like most, uh, most previous civilizations have had other human beings building things and making things, and those human beings have come from other tribes or other groups or being selected in various ways to do that kind of work. And of course, what we got with coal and with oil was enabling machines to do that kind of industrial work. And um, now, if we stay on track with things, we can do it in different ways. We've got, um, we need to come off the coal and oil. It's causing problems. You know, it's seriously problematic, all the science, and I mean all of it, is pointing towards the use of fossil fuels, the primary driver of climate change. There are others like heliocentric activity, but it's primarily our behavior that's changing that. And we have alternatives. If we pumped money into them, like we were doing into sort of warfare, we would have it sorted by now. And of course, this is, for example, is the fusion reactor. We have the capacity now to get energy out of fusing atoms together. It's like creating a micro sun where we can pull together hydrogen atoms to create helium atoms and get energy out of that process. It's taken 25 years to get to the point where we can get any you know, more energy out of it than we put in, but we're on it now. So we need some massive investment to be able to get that moving. And we could be able to power things on this planet in a whole new way. But like I said, 
there's a lot of vested interests out there. You know, it appears to be a lot of individuals who want things to stay with um, potentially them and the people they know, or whatever it is. I, I don't know enough about it, but whatever's going out there in terms of a corporate military industrial complex and how all that runs, you know, it appears to be those individuals aren't really very ecologically sane. They don't appear to be very intelligent with regard to understanding things. And if they were, their money would be being pumped into fusion reactors because we've got something there that could work. Anyway, off that for a minute. because because But the interesting thing is, but all this adds to the stress we experience. 52% of our young people have got mental health problems. Clinically, mental health problems, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's addictions, 52%. That's huge for a civilization to have 52% of its young people in some mental health crisis is a problem. Yes. These are, these are, these are health statistics, right? This is a real problem and nobody's really doing anything about it. The money isn't being put into the infrastructure. And the thing is that these children are, they are our future. If we're not investing in young people in, in realistically in education for all people, and not just to select few. If we're not investing realistically in really, really good education, and really good education means we have one adult teacher for about eight children. We know scientifically how education works. These young people are growing up. They've been through COVID crisis. There's a threat of a nuclear war on, you know, there's climate crisis and they have to grow with all of this. They have to grow with all the structures and the social media and everything else that they're working with. And we are not investing in those people enough. So these young people are growing up stressed out and with mental health problems. What are we going to do about it? Well, we can start sharing the metadisciplines at a base level. But the second thing we also need to do, in my view, is invest. Invest massively in well-being and care and education for young people so that we can help them because they are the future of this planet. That's it. They are. Let's come back on track with the evolutionary biology. We've reached out into the future a little bit. Let's come back on track because, you know, like I said, our ventral surface facing forwards means we have to communicate differently. And, and as far as I'm concerned, communication is an art form. One of the beautiful things about ventral surface to ventral surface is we can do face-to-face -face mating. No other animal can do that, apart from snails and slugs and snakes and dolphins. You know, the shadow side of all this, like I said, is armor plating our bodies and, and trying, to, trying to create invulnerability and to switch down out of empathy, to come out of the deep feeling that this vulnerability creates. We feel each other. You know, there are so many things that affect, you know, you can Botox your lips. If you put Botox, or not your face, I beg your pardon, it's filler in the lips, isn't it? If you fill your lips and Botox your face, your face can't reflect somebody else's face in terms of your mirror neurons affecting your face and you your empathy your capacity to feel into another person is reduced we know full well that taking kids and isolating them in um you know certain kinds of school particularly public schools where they're taken away from their parents at a very early age actually reduces empathy so we're training people in reduced empathy to not feel other people to not feel what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes so we're kind of building selfish worlds, selfish, greedy worlds around us. And what we find with the kind of situation where we're funneling wealth into the hands of the super wealthy and, and people at the bottom are getting poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer is that is increasing stress. It's increasing the amount of stress people are fearing. Financial stress, emotional stress, 
you know, on every single level, people are feeling more and more stress. You know, again, looking at health statistics, we've got somewhere around about between 70 and 76% of the population, you know, experiencing stress on a daily basis. And we're talking about the kind of stress that's heading towards the feeling of overwhelm. There's just too much for me to deal with. That's overwhelm. And if we don't start working with this, if we don't start changing this from the ground up and creating systems and situations and clarity around how to do this, we're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. We've talked about stress. Stress is, is connected to all of the cardiometabolic disorders, all of metabolic dysfunction. So the more stressed out people are, the more we have to pick the pieces up later, unless we just let them rot, of course. Is that the plan with health services, just to let them die? Because the more people are stressed out now, then in 20 years, we have more people with cancer, more people with heart problems, more people with early onset dementia, more people with diabetes. Because these metabolic dysfunctions are symptoms yeah, of an overall problem in the system. And stress aggravates all of that. So the more we're doing this, we're creating cultures which are going to be, well, actually Gabor Mate calls them toxic cultures. Gabor Mate calls them a toxic culture because it's very difficult to grow human beings well in this kind of culture. And that's what we're experiencing. What we can do about it for ourselves and what I'm promoting that we can do about ourselves is use the meta-disciplines. And the meta-disciplines are conscious breath work used intelligently. I'm not just talking about some kind of mouth-breathing, hypercapnia to push out the carbon dioxide to deoxygenate my brain that has functions of course it does it gets people in touch with what's valuable with what's precious it can help people resolve trauma it can also of course create trauma and of course if people do it unconsciously and unintelligently it can also add to metabolic dysfunction because one of the signs of metabolic dysfunction is hypoxia reducing oxygen in the system reducing oxygen in the brain so if we do that on a regular, say every, every Saturday morning, let's suggest that every Saturday morning we do a hypercapnic mouth breathing practice and get into that state of feeling high, ripped, slightly connected to everything. It's a bit like a near-death experience. If we do that, say, every Saturday morning, you know, without any way of understanding how to re-regulate our physiology, what we can be doing potentially is making ourselves sick in 10 or 15 or 20 years like really sick because we're creating that hypercapnia we're overriding our breathing reflexes and creating hypercapnic consequences in our system so that's why i say systematic breath work this kind of thing that passes as breath work at the moment which is all this mouth breathing stuff like i said it has some benefit i'm not knocking it completely it has some benefit but if we look at all the benefit that could be had we're talking about a tiny percentage here you know it is not breath work so i'm talking about systematic conscious breath work i'm also talking about meditative depth and here primarily i'm talking about brain training training your brain so you can work with perspective you can work with your dopamine systems you can work with creating focus and build that in you know the more we have to deal with screens then the more we need to have access to working well with our own motivation networks, the dopaminergic systems, the mesolimbic and the mesocortical systems, and balance those well through mind training. So mind training 
um, sometimes I call it mind mastery. Mind mastery or mind training is a crucial meta discipline to cultivate if we're going to stay well in in these times of increasing change. And of course, we're getting into you know increasing depth with the carbon silicon interface now, where we're getting the you know the beautiful carbon molecule which can have four bonds and the beautiful silicon model coming into a closer embrace through the means of uh, of tech. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating time we live in. And of course, it can also be, you know, highly problematic. It's going to have shadows. It is. That's the way everything has shadows. Yeah. Somebody once said to me, I can't remember who said this, but the problems of today were the solutions of yesterday. Yeah. That's how it is. So the solutions we come up with today are going to be the problems of tomorrow. We're not going to get it right. You can't get it all right. You can anticipate and work out as much as possible and really consider into the future. And this is what we want to be doing, not just little short-term five, five-year plans of, will somebody vote for me if I do this? I mean, that's utter nonsense. Running a planet on, will somebody vote for me if I say this, is nonsense. I mean, I, 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 got, you know, I do wonder at the intelligence of human beings sometimes, you know, when we look at this. Anyway, ventral surface forward, meta-disciplines to help us. Embodied awareness is the other personal meta-disciplines. We have conscious breath work, mind training, and embodied awareness because the body is a profound tool, a profound vehicle of consciousness. It's a way of being in the world which enables us to land, actually put our feet on the ground and land and live well. And the more and more we're studying into embodiment, the more clarity there is as to how profound it is. You know, some beautiful work written like, um, you know, um, about, you know, intelligence in the flesh. Uh, Guy Claxton, Dr. Guy Claxton's book, um, Intelligence in the Flesh, for example, is beautiful, really excellent book. And there's so much out there now coming in this way. So these three personal meta-disciplines can help us make a difference if it's supported well with a culture that enables people taking responsibility. And again, we have a culture where collective responsibility isn't encouraged massively. You know, we have a lot of human rights, but we don't have human responsibilities. We need to outline what our human responsibilities are and live with them and live together and take, you know, we have duties of care for each other. And these duties of care, in my view, aren't manifested in the same way. So we need to have responsibilities balanced with rights. Rights and responsibilities, in my view, are two wings of the same uh, movement into the future. You know, you know, our, our, the interesting thing about human beings with the upright stance is that it also gave us shoulders, these kind of brachiation type shoulders. Um, I won't go into the evolution of this too much right now, but, you know, it gave us shoulders that could throw over arm. And this movement is uniquely human. Capacity to throw like this. And that's because of our bipedal stance. And this change, this evolutionary change, enabled us to throw projectiles, stones perhaps to begin with, but certainly spears. We could kill it at a distance. And killing at a distance for a vulnerable ventral surface creature without claws and big teeth is profoundly powerful. We were the first creature, other than, say, venom-spitting snakes, that could actually kill at a distance. You know, along with our tool-making hands, we invented spears, bows, arrows, and the trajectory of killing, you know, unfortunately, we, we seem to struggle with 
um, advancing our ethics as much as we advance our industrial capacities. We have work to do to do this. Like I said, we're a baby species, but we kind of need to advance our ethics because at the moment we have obviously, you know, that led to gunpowder, machine guns, and now we have Sarmat missiles. Wonderful. I'm curious about the individuals who thought there was a good idea to invent a missile that could destroy a whole country. I mean, do these people not have children? Do they not have grandchildren? Do they not have family? Are they so isolated, ethically isolated in their intelligence that they think it's a really good thing to go, you know, I'm just going to go to work, make a weapon of mass destruction. I mean, what? Really? And then you go home to your kids, do you? Is that how you work it? Or I'm going to go and make a weapon of mass destruction. I'm going to go home and cuddle my children and tell them it's all good because I'm creating a world of horror. It doesn't make sense, does it? But of course, this is where our functions have led us to. And we need to work with our ethics. We need to build our ethics in place. To build our ethics in place, we have to work with our own brain and train our own brain. Nobody else is responsible for this. We have to do the work. It's a tough world. Violence, human violence against each other, tribal warfare. You know, looking at how we do, how we do self and other. And again, brain training, mind training comes into this. Conscious breath work comes into this. How we do comparison, how we do shame and the experience of separation. You know, you know, of course, you know, th these things are natural. The thing about being a part, you know, a living, moving creature with a separated nervous system, which doesn't have roots in the ground, is that we have edges and we experience injury, death and disease. And of course, you know, the need for us to band together, to socialize, because we don't have those big teeth or fangs or fur to keep us warm. You know, the need to be together as social animals. And it's led to a whole new variety of social stress and culture construction. And this we have to face. This is what we're facing now. We're facing into it through social media. We're facing it into it through the screen. We're facing into it in when we walk out into the world and there are people on the street we don't know. You know, go back 10,000 years to the hunter-gatherer packs. You know, you'd walk out of your whatever kind of uh, you know encampment you were in, you'd walk out and you would know everybody's face. You wouldn't have your amygdala kicking off with stranger danger. Now, you go out into a street. If I go out in the street in my city, I know a few people where I live. I know a few people in the city. I've got a few friends. But other than that, there's strangers everywhere. I don't know them. They can become friends. This is a good thing. You know, if it was a whole crowd of chimpanzees and they didn't know each other, they'd be ripping each other to pieces. We've got some advantage but we still seem to really struggle with this social connection and this culture construction and that, you know, building a way that we can really, really evolve to take responsibility for each other. And my view is the more we get into mind training, the more we get into these meta disciplines, the more these offer an opportunity for pro-social development, where we can begin to take that responsibility of care for ourselves and for the planet. And we have to do that. Otherwise it's extinction time. There have been many, many mass extinctions before. I think it's five that I can count. Maybe it's maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's six, but it's certainly five. Five mass extinctions when, you know, 70 to 90% of life or more gets wiped out. This time, what's driving the changes, it's always driven by climate change, by the way. All the mass extinctions, one way or another, are facilitated by climate change. Sometimes the climate change has been initiated by, you know, massive 10 kilometer meteorites smacking into the earth. Sometimes by changing volcanic gases, 
you know, there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, we went into an 80 million snowball earth period, 80 million years of frozen planet earth, you know, but these things, these things happen, but right now what's driving it is us. We're the biggest driver with, with, because the fuel we're burning, the old coal and the oil that we're burning was locked into the ground for uh, 260, 280 million years. It's trees, it's plants that grew then that captured the carbon and locked it down under the earth. And we're pulling it all up and burning it and pumping it in the atmosphere. And that is changing things. And of course, there are climate change deniers. There are ma it's a massive industry. It's called the oil industry. You know, it's a massive industry. You know, with, with, you know, how do we work out? How do we get out of this pickle? Well, begin by working with our own stress. That's the very beginning is we have to work with regulating and finding our optimal well-being and then coming together to make decisions. And I know full well that things will change because they have to now. It's getting to the point now where we're heading towards 1.5 degrees C rise and things have to change. The stories that people have been telling us about, there is no climate change, you know, and I live in the UK. And we have many, many senior politicians still spouting that story. And one thing you won't hear, you know, any politician talking about in the UK is climate change still. None of them are talking about it, really. None of them. Not really. Not in a meaningful way. They pose on platforms and do a little bit of posing and a little bit of kind of like vote counting about climate change. But nobody's actually doing anything. And the current level of, you know, the current governance in the UK, what they're doing is locking up people for the stop oil protests. They're making it harder and harder and harder to protest. And it's curious because the, you know, the harder the climate change gets, the more they're gonna punish people, the more they're gonna lock people up. Maybe, let's see what happens. But change is needed and change will come. And that is inevitable now because the melting the ice, the ice is still melting. You know, we'll go for another six months. Yeah, there'll be more blah, blah, blah on the media and the ice will still be melting and nothing will have changed. There'll still be people pumping money into huge weapons-based constructions. You know, the war in Ukraine will continue and still the ice is melting. You know, the news will still be full of micro moments of what some superstar had for lunch or, you know, how their, how their you know, the plastic surgery has gone or whatever, you know, to, to, to blind people to what's needed. That was going to continue. And the ice is still melting and the climate is still warming. And that is going to lead to climate chaos. And climate chaos is going to lead to a lack of food. I'm not... This is not fear-mongering. If you want to look at the science behind this, then read Bill Maguire's book. It's called Hot House Earth. He's a volcanologist. It's a really good, it's a very scary book, but it's a really good book. So that's Bill Maguire. This is all stressful. Our kids are dealing with this. They're checking this stuff out and they realize they're going to have to grow up in this world. They're going to, they're going to have children in this world, maybe. And they're going to grow up in the world that we're creating. We're not doing anything about it. We're hiding. You know, so, you know, and those people who are aware of it, you know, it's a massive problem. How do we change things and do it well? How do we change things and do it well? How do we do it when the people who are supposed to be in governance aren't even addressing the issues in a meaningful way? Let's find out. Now, take a breath. Take a breath. Here we are. The baby species. 200,000 years old. We have all the mechanisms of fight, flight, 
freeze, flop, fawn, the stress responses, fight, you know, aggressive reaction, fright, flight, run away, freeze, grab it in the head like, fawn, you know, make friends with the people who are, uh, are oppressing us in some way, hurting us, and flop, collapse. We have all those tools. And when we can face into those and really work with those and manage our, our own neural responses to a huge degree and take ownership of this sympathetic nervous system, get familiar with it, get comfortable with it, find those edges and work with those, we can expand our zone of capacity and we can expand our comfort with being in our nervous system, make those zones, shift them from being you know, distress towards you stress. And we can start to build radical resilience whereby we have the capacity. We have, you have the capacity. I have the capacity collectively. We have the capacity to start turning this you stress, you know, turning everything into you stress, turning it from radical distress into radical resilience. And the tools for this that I know of, and maybe you know more, what other tools have we got? What else can we do? What else can we do? The tools I know are these meta disciplines and they can really help us to take ownership of our nervous system, take ownership of the central nervous system, our stress responses and work with those effectively so that we can optimize. And if we're not running in an optimal way, life gets complicated. The more stressed we are, the less we're available for good relationship, loving relationship. The more stressed we are, the less empathy we have. The more stressed we are, the less we can communicate effectively. The more stressed we are, the less choice we have available to us. We know all of this. And the more stressed we are, the less we can remember, the less we can learn. We have to change this around. And for, at the moment, it's us taking responsibility for this and gradually, gradually building in cultures into place which support us and support our children and support our children's children to do the work of looking after ourselves, taking responsibility, taking responsibility for our species and taking responsibility for stewardship of the planet. And this is a whole piece of work and it begins with this breath. It begins with the breath right now. Take a breath. Take a breath. All behavior is learned. It's conditioned by family, culture, schools, all culture is created. Every moment of culture creation is how we are in the world. The question is, what did we learn about who we are? What did we learn how to be in different contexts and situations? What did we learn how to behave from all these different sources, family, culture, schools, etc.? How do we do this? The thing is, when we learned that when we were young, how much of that is currently appropriate or useful in the context we are now in? Because we have to learn to be able to delete and get rid of the conditioning that no longer serves us and to know the difference. We don't want to throw babies out with bathwaters, but we want to be able to know the difference. And to know the difference, we have to have informed choice. So building, building neural webs, mind training, where we're building neural webs where we can do good sense making and really think about things in a good way and dialogue with people in a good way, dialogue with people who completely disagree with us, but stay in clarity in this place and stay in empathy. Can Is it possible to stay in empathy with somebody who completely disagrees with? Work we have to do.
unconscious replication of our conditioning into the world assumes two things. One, that we are our conditioning, and we aren't. It's an installation, and we can uninstall it. And second, that living as the conditioning we received from family, from culture, from schools, is the right and only way to be. It isn't. Might be. It might be. But the thing is that when you have choice, you have choice. And when you find awareness, then you have choice. And awareness is why we practice these three meta-disciplines. It's why we practice and why we prioritize the three meta-disciplines, because they're all about finding awareness. Conscious breathwork, mind training, embodied awareness are all about finding awareness to give you choice, to give you the capacity to make informed choices to live well. Take a breath. Slowly, slowly in, slowly out, down into your belly. Just take a breath for a moment or two. Now, you can check out my courses. Check out the courses online. Go to my website, check them out, and get yourself the tools to help you live optimally.